Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, we are in the middle of this relationship series, and uh, we're also entering into, as Kevin just described a few moments ago, the Lenten season. I would encourage you, uh, just on Wednesday, take, set aside time, come uh, get connected with other people in this community, and really, Ash Wednesday is all about repentance, and that's why we put the ashes on, that's why we uh, bow the knee, to say, God, as we enter into this season... We just want to come in with a humble posture. We want to come in completely repentant, ready to uh, experience you, be connected to you in ways that are pretty profound over the next 40 days or so. So I'd encourage you, um, just really dive into that and allow that uh, time to prepare all of us for Easter. I want to talk uh, this morning, just to kind of start, about words. And have you ever noticed that uh, if you use certain words too often, you kind of strip them of their meaning? You can begin to uh, use a word in such a way that the word no longer carries the weight that perhaps it once carried, or that it becomes devoid of all meaning. I'll give you a couple examples. Love. Love is a word that I think we often take a lot of the power and the strength of the word out. I mean, I love my wife, I love my kids, I love Arsenal soccer. I love Garrett's popcorn from Chicago. I love the movie I just saw. I love the weather outside. I love everything. And then when I love everything, I end up kind of stripping that word from the deep and rich meaning that it has. We do it with a word, awesome. We say, God is awesome. We say, the last pair of shoes we got were awesome. My kids think Legos are Awesome. I mean, everything becomes awesome, and it suddenly becomes stripped of meaning. We do it with theological words, too. We do it with the word missional. I know that we talk a lot about that word here because it means that we believe that God is a missionary God, that we are missionary people, that He has sent out into the world to engage the community in a way that draws them to Him and reconciles the world to Him. That's the idea of mission. But we use mission or missional in so many contexts, in so many ways, that it becomes devoid of meaning. So we have missional books that come out, missional conferences. Maybe you just joined like a missional exercise class. There's, we bake missional muffins. I mean, it doesn't, we just constantly are throwing out the word. And suddenly, when we say we are all called to mission, we no longer know what we're called to. We also do this with verses. We do this with verses quite a bit. So here's one. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? We just start tossing that around. We write it on our eye black. We put it on the edge of our cleats before the big game. We uh, maybe quote it before a test or a big term paper that we wait until the very last night to write all ten pages, and we go, oh, well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me with a little caffeine as well, and we'll, we'll get this thing done. And so it suddenly just is stripped of meaning. It becomes the verse that you quote right before the big workout or before whatever it is you're trying to do. We also do it with uh, this verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord's plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. It's a great verse. 
In context, it's describing the people of Israel that are in a covenant relationship with God. And he says to them, while you're in exile, and while you are seeking the shalom of the city, I will be with you, and your plans will prosper. And so what we do is we write that in graduation cards. And we put it on, you know, that we declare it as a life verse. And we basically say, anybody going through a hard time, well, hey, listen, it doesn't matter what you're going through, and it doesn't matter even how you're living in life. God will always make your plans succeed and will bless you forever and ever. Amen. And we just kind of declare it, and then we kind of take the very meaning of the words, and we just toss them aside. Well, we also do it with one of the verses we're looking at this morning. The verse is this, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am with them also. I mean, I'm sure you've heard this before. I mean, we say it at the ends of our prayers. We uh, gather with like three people at Starbucks and we're like, one, two, three, Jesus is here. This is, this is awesome. Man, this is so good. I didn't realize, you know, we, we say it during worship time that, that God is here in our midst and we know it because, look, we're here, we've gathered and so he's present with us and The verse is not obviously intended to be the feel-good verse of the year or anything. The verse has a very specific meaning, a very specific purpose. And in fact, what's interesting, it's this verse, this statement from God, from Jesus, is the only time he ever declares that in the midst of a group of people, I am present. I mean, that's a pretty profound statement. And he says, in the midst of a gathering of people, I am present. And the context behind that statement is what we're going to be looking at today. He says, I am present with us, with you, in a unique, unique way. A unique, um, specific, particular way. When you are working for community restoration, and forgiveness. That if you are actually about seeking forgiveness, reconciling one another to each other, then I am present with you. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 18. And what we're going to do is look at the context of this verse and go through this next section in the relationship series. So far, we have uh, talked about loving your enemies, that all of us need to find a third way. That it isn't just about um, ignoring our enemies or trying to find ways to conveniently avoid them, but really, it's about finding the way of love, of going out of your way to care for them. Then we talked about judging, taking the log out of our own eye, and instead of projecting what we're struggling with onto others, to actually extract the log before we help anyone else extract the little sawdust or little speck. And we've been talking about these kingdom ways of relating that really, we've been talking about some difficult stuff. And this is what makes following Jesus, and why it's, he describes it as the narrow way, or the difficult road. Because these things aren't easy. They're uh, living in a way that is unlike those around us. It's living in a way where we value things that others don't value. We pursue things that others don't pursue. 
And we do it with our relationships. And so we come to Matthew 18, and Jesus says to us in this particular section, He says this, verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven again, I say to you. If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Pretty strong words of Jesus. Pretty uh, significant topic for us to wrestle with. And, but let me say this. Before we dive into those verses that I just read, I think it's really important to recognize that Jesus had a few assumptions that he was coming into this statement with. All right? He was assuming a few things, and I know that we would say, you know what happens to people when you assume it might not be good, right? But he is assuming a couple really important things. The first thing he is assuming is this, that these things that we're about to talk about happen with humility. Jesus is assuming that his followers are people that are walking in humility. If you look at the context of Matthew 18, the very first part of the chapter speaks to this idea that all of us must walk as humble people, humble followers of Jesus. So his assumption is that we are already trying to live our lives with that particular posture as we come into his statements. The second thing that I believe Jesus assumes is he assumes community. What I mean by that is he assumes that we are actually living close enough to one another that we would make these verses become reality. He's assuming that we actually talk to one another about things that matter and not just the latest news or gossip or cool TV show. He's assuming that we actually live close enough together in a life-on-life kind of relationship that we're willing to enter into each other's lives. So there's some obvious big assumptions on Jesus' part because those assumptions kind of frame what these verses are all about. And so what I want to do is I want to take this first verse and we're going to kind of go in slow motion, all right? We're going to take one little phrase at a time. So if you look at the verse, I'll read it one more time and then we'll dissect it. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So Jesus starts off by saying, if. If. All right? This is a giant word in this context. If you have a Bible and a pen handy, this would be the kind of word that you would circle, the kind of word you would underline, highlight. This is a big word because it says right from the beginning, if. Let me explain. This means 
that you don't go into something like this on a rumor. It means you don't have this little fragment that's out there that you grab a hold of and extrapolate on it and make it into something that it is not. This is not, oh, he looked at me this certain way, and so that must mean this or that. This is not, I heard so-and-so laughed at a joke that so-and-so said, and they don't like puppies, which means they probably don't like me. Right? I mean, it just... What we do is we allow our imaginations to run wild. We we get these fragments of information, these bits of information, and all of a sudden we begin to create something that was never there. We create scenarios that never existed, We imagine offenses that never happened. And all of a sudden, our imagination begins to run wild and our brains create all this information. And and it's possible that none of that is true. That's why he says, if. I mean, what we say is, man, I, I sent him an email. I haven't heard back, which probably means... Or I texted them and I haven't heard anything. I mean, it's been two minutes. Give it some time. Right? Like, let it simmer a little bit. Or, or we start imagining that, you know, it, I mean, it is possible, though, that they didn't receive your email. It is possible that they don't check their email every 2.8 minutes. It is possible that they were just having a bad day and the expression that they had on their face has nothing to do with you. It is possible. So Jesus starts from the beginning and he says, if. If your brother or sister sins against you. If your brother or sister sins against you. Now, literally, sins means sins against you. Okay? This is something contrary to the very teachings of Jesus. This is not um, a preference thing. This is not a, well, I was raised this way, and that's kind of way different than the way I was raised. It's none of that. It's, when you think of it, think of it as a Matthew kind of Sermon on the Mount kind of thing. It's idolatry. It's lust, adultery, murder, stealing. It's all of those things kind of contained in the teachings of Jesus that are very clear. And so he says, right off the beginning, if your brother or sister sins against you or against the community, against the body of Christ, then go and tell them. Right? So first of all, if. Second of all, your brother or sister sins against you. I mean, this is against you. This is reliable. It's not so-and-so who told so-and-so who told so-and-so that Tom's second cousin said this. Right? It sins against you. The next phrase is go to them. Go to them. This is probably one of the most neglected sections of this verse. This is where one of the big hang-ups is. What that means, go to them, it means to take the initiative. It means not to wait for the other person to come to you. This is not, well, when they get their act together, and then they humble themselves enough to come to me and beg for forgiveness, then I will deal with it. No, it says, go to them. A couple, about a month or so back, I taught on Matthew chapter 5 and talked about how in Matthew 5 it says, 
if you were the one that offended someone else. So let's say I offended Danielle and I said, hey, I'm, this is what happened. I'm sorry I come, right? And, and, I, and I deal with it, right? And so some people said, well, oh, that's great. Oh, man, I feel so much better about that teaching because I was the one that got offended. And so now I can just kind of sit back and do nothing. And I remember telling this person, well, actually, we'll get to Matthew 18. And when we do, what it says is, if you're the one that was offended, go to your brother or sister. What's the point? The point is, whether you offended or whether you were offended, that you are coming toward each other. Right? That reconciliation is beginning to happen. That you somehow are going, man, there's something between us. It's a little weird. It's a little different. There, there's something that shouldn't be here and so... I'm supposed to go to them. Now, this is where humility, that Jesus was assuming earlier, really is very important. Because when we go to someone to clean up a matter, we, we have to approach them or approach the conversation not by making statements, but by asking questions. Not by making statements, but by asking questions. Making statements is when we come to the person and we say, you did, or you always, or you never, or when you said it meant, or when you looked like it, you get the idea, right? That's making statements. Asking questions is when we come to someone and we say, will you help me understand? Help me understand. There's this thing that I noticed that I kind of just rubbed me the wrong way, or I was wondering about this, or can you help me understand why? And so we go to them with the goal of seeking understanding. So Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go to them. Next phrase, just between the two of you. Just between you and him, or you and her alone. Just between the two of you and your 1,300 Facebook friends. Just between the two of you and anyone else who's willing to side with you and can become a part of your team to confront the other person. No. Right? This is not a time to broadcast. This is not a time to blog rant or to update your status. This is just between the two of you. Right? That's what Jesus says. This is again where his teaching becomes difficult. Because anytime something happens between me and someone, it creates tension. So let's say Jeremy and I, he does something toward me. I'm offended. We begin to have something between us. There's tension. There was a a weird look, a weird statement. There were... There was something he did that directly offended me. That, and all of a sudden, like, this frustration, this discouragement, this tension, this thing that I go, oh, man, this is kind of weird between he and I, it starts to build, right? And anytime pressure builds, what happens? We want to release it, right? I mean, when pressure starts to build within something, it either builds to the point that it explodes or to the point that a release valve 
is there and it releases the pressure that's built. And so what Jesus says is the way to release that pressure, release that tension, is come to Jeremy and go, hey, I mean, I understand there's this little weird thing that's happening maybe between you and I, and I'd love to talk this out. If we don't do that, here's the deal. You will most likely, at some point, release the tension. Right? It just won't be with the one that you're supposed to release it with. It'll be you telling your friend, slandering with your neighbor, getting frustrated with your coworker, you making a statement to this person. You start to build a case because now like, you want a trial, you want a deliberation, I need a jury, let's get as many people on my side as possible. And I begin to release the tension by going to other people. And Jesus says, no, no, no. This is just between the two of you. Then it says, if they listen to you, you have won them over. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Now listen here is an important word because it's a real holistic understanding of the word. It's not if they heard what you said, you've won them over. But rather, it means if they get it. If the two of you work it out. If you've come to a conclusion, if you've made it right, if you've cleaned it up, if somehow the two of you have united in this thing, then you've won them over. If that happens, you've won them over. And now let me pause just for a moment, because I think this is a, a crucial part of the conversation. When we think about confronting someone else, and we think about having this conversation And we're hoping, we're desiring, we're longing for them to listen in the midst of this loving conversation, right? My encouragement to all of us is if we desire that response from someone else, we have to be people who ourselves are willing to listen. So my question is are you willing to listen? Turn to, keep your finger there in Matthew 18 and turn to Proverbs really quick with me. I'm just going to look at a couple quick verses in Proverbs. I've heard there's a few things of wisdom in here. It says in, in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof I love this, is stupid. Yeah? So he says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. If, you, if, it's, if you're not okay with someone coming to you and saying, hey, listen, let me, let me encourage you with this, or this is something that might be between you and me, and, but if you're not listening or willing to listen to that, go a little further in verse 15, same chapter. It says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. We can be considered wise if we're willing to listen to a brother or sister. Flip a couple pages over. Proverbs 15, verse 32. It says this, Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. That's an interesting way of saying it. 
Not whoever despises instruction, despises advice, despises wisdom, hates the person that gave it to them. But no, if you despise it, you hate yourself. But he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. So here's, here's my encouragement. Invite instruction into your life. Invite people to ask you questions. Invite people or give them permission to have them say to you perhaps what needs to be heard. So for instance, ask this question to someone. Do you notice in me something that I need to work on? Do you notice in me something I need to work on? Or, based on last week, do you notice if I have something in my eye? Do you notice if I have a log? Because the reality is, often we don't see the own speck or the own log in our own eye, right? So it's asking someone else, can you, can you check this out for me? This, about two weeks ago, I was sitting with a group of past, pastors and we were um, meeting to prep for uh, this conversation we're going to have with the mayor at the end of this month. And we're sitting around this table, and right across from me is Joe Whitworth from Life Center. And uh, we, we just get done eating, and he has to get up to say a few things before we uh, hear from the leader of the transition team. And he's sitting there, and he looks at me, and he goes, do I have anything in my teeth? And I go, what? And he goes, yeah, look. Like that, right? And I go, you're clean, you're good. And then he got up and walked. What was he doing? He was inviting inspection. <laughs> I don't want lettuce leaves hanging out. I don't want, you know, meat hanging off my teeth. I, I'm asking you, I can't see. I can't see myself the way I wish I could in this instance. Will you observe for me? Do you invite people into your life to ask you those kinds of questions? Are you okay if they ask you questions that are personal? Do you give people permission to speak into your life? I've, uh, <clears throat> I lived for about ten and a half years in Indiana, and I had a good group of friends, guys that I would meet with on a regular basis that would often... Uh, tell me things I wanted to hear, and then often tell me things I had no desire to hear. And there was this one friend, his name was Justin, and Justin and I built quite a good relationship. It it was over a long period of time, and uh, he was willing to come and ask me any question. It didn't matter what the question was, didn't matter how personal it was, it didn't matter if he thought I might be offended at it or not, he would ask the question, and I would, with everything within me, try to answer it with complete honesty. But here's the thing, Justin also had permission that I granted him to have conversations with my wife. So Justin could at any time have a conversation with my wife where he said to Shannon, Shannon, how is Russ doing? Or more importantly, Shannon, how is Russ treating you? How is Russ honoring you? What are the ways in Russ is loving you or showing that love to you? And then it went the other way. My wife could at any time... In any situation, call my friend Justin and dish dirt on me, okay? So one day, I remember getting this phone call. It's the middle of the day, getting stuff done. My friend Justin calls. Hey, how's it going? Oh, it's great, man. Things are really good. And 
How's life? Life, excellent. How's the family? Family's great. How's your wife doing? Superb. I mean, couldn't be better. Things are so awesome. And uh, he goes, really? That's great, because I just got off the phone with your wife. And I went, oh, okay, well, maybe I need to reconsider the uh, answer I just gave you. And he goes, yeah, let's talk about it. And so we began to talk about where things were at and what was happening and how I was living and whether or not I was being considerate to some of the things that were going on in her life. And I mean, have you invited someone into your life in that way? Have you allowed people to ask you those kinds of questions? So we're only one verse in here, and I'm convinced that if all of us just practice verse 15 so far, right? If we just practice verse 15, there would be so much more unity, so much more wholeness, so much more togetherness in the body of Christ if we lived into the reality that if your brother or sister sins against you, go to them. Work it out. Be willing on both parties to listen and to seek the good of the relationship. Now, he says, just in case it doesn't work out, he says this in verse 16, but if he does not listen, if he does not listen, and then he gives just a couple little quick statements about what happens if this person that I went to and love just doesn't listen and we're at odds still. And the responses are these. It's just two. One, take one or two people with you. So if you go to him or her one-on-one and it's rejected, and you still believe it to be an issue that is causing conflict in the body of Christ between you and them, then you're supposed to take one or two other people with you. Interested third parties. This is not your cronies who are all going to agree with you. This is not like somebody that you know has been through a similar situation. This is people that you respect, that you believe are wise, that have good advice, that are willing to tell both you or them that, hey, this is how we need to begin to work this out. He says to do that for the good of restoration, for the good of unity. If that does not work, he says what? Tell it to the church. Now, in our context, that means... Go to your small group about it. That you're supposed to go to those people that you're living in community with, that you're in relationship with, that know your life, know their life. Go to them and seek restoration. Seek forgiveness. Seek this whole thing to be worked out. Now let me say this really quick. You don't go to that step until you've gone through all the other steps. And you don't rush to this step of going to the church. You genuinely and honestly seek to work it out and you move toward wholeness. Then he says, and this is the um, hotly debated section of our time, he says in verse um, 17, um, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, loosed in heaven. Again, if two or three of you agree to anything and pray about it, it's yours. And then for where two or three are gathered in your name, I'm among them. So what I want to do, because we could probably give a sermon on each of those alone, I'm going to take about two or three minutes and just kind of condense that into a couple little ideas, all right? The first one is this. 
that if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile tax collector. This is perceived by many people in many different ways. I'm going to give you uh, the really short definition, and it would be this. That if you as an individual have gone to the person, it didn't work out. You've gone to two or three other people, together it didn't work out. You go to your small group, you begin to work through, and it doesn't work out. Then what it's saying is that you and that individual should create a little distance between themselves, right? It says you're to, you are to step away from them, okay? Now, my assumption in that is that the rest of the community does not. If you look at the context, first of all, you have 99 sheep, one sheep. What does it say? Don't just hang out with the 99, right? Go and get the one. So there's, the goal is reconciliation. The goal is forgiveness. The immediate context following this verse is what? If your brother sins against you, forgive him. How many times? Well, like seven? No. How about like 70 times seven? How about again and again and again and again until you can't think of doing it anymore? That's the point, right? So the context is saying, treat others, the rest of us, in a way that Jesus probably treated tax collectors and sinners, Matthew being one of them, and many people that he interacted with, with the goal of bringing them to full community. All right? Second phrase is, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's really primarily two ways that I would understand this particular passage. The first one is this. It simply means that if you're in this conversation with someone and they turn and they come back toward community, come back toward restoration, come back toward forgiveness, then, as the parable describes immediately following, regardless of the debt that is owed, you can loose them. You can free them. They're no longer bound by guilt. They're no longer bound to obligation that you've freed them and they've been loosed. Now, obviously, in that parable, there's also the understanding that you could bind them to something. You could say, well, I'm going to make you repay me or I'm going to make you. And again, that's uh, in that context is not the goal. That's not the hope. In fact, when the one person binds, then the guy who was owed a lot comes back and binds the other, right? Another way of looking at it or understanding it would be this. Let's say, um, if we put it back in New Testament times, and um, my friend over here, Aaron, Aaron is uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols, and I'm not eating meat sacrificed to idols. And I go to Aaron, and I go, hey, buddy, I noticed you were digging into that steak a little bit, and, you know, it was sacrificed, and that might be an issue, and I think that's not what we should do. And Aaron goes, dude, filet mignon, really good. I love it. Like, I'm sticking with it. You know, no worries. It's okay. And then I go, well, no, no, really, it's, and so then I grab a couple people. Go like, Aaron, man, you can't do this. It's going gonna, it's gonna to twist your relationship with God. You're not going to, and then I go to my small group, and I go, dude, he's still eating meat. Let's talk, you know, and we, we interact. What this text, another way of looking at it could be saying is this, that as you get together as a small group, as you get together as the church, and you begin to make these decisions before God, you can say, as they did in the New Testament, they said, you know what, actually, meat sacrificed to idols is okay. We're going to loose that and allow our community to live into that. Now, we could also say as a community, you know, we're going to just kind of keep that tight for right now and not go there, 
All right? So that's another way of looking at it. Obviously, there's a couple other ways of looking at it and lots of debate on this section. But I would say, for me, it boils down to one of those two. The final two are this. Again, I say to you, whatever you agree, two of you agree on earth, whatever you ask, it will be done for them in heaven. And then last, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Let me conclude it by saying this. Basically, what that means is that when you are seeking restoration together as a community, you are trying to live into this value of love, forgiveness, wholeness in the body of Christ, that when you're praying for wisdom, when you're seeking agreement, that God will agree with you. When you're binding and loosing things and you're freeing people from guilt, that he's agreeing with you. And that whenever this is happening together, that he's in our midst, that he's close at hand. So we broke it down. Let me give you in two minutes ways I think we can live this out in context. Number one, always pursue restoration and reconciliation. Always. Pursue it. That means go to them. Just between the two of you, seek to make it right, figure it out. And I think when we do this, we actually live into the value that Jesus was praying for, that you may be one, that the body of Christ may be one and whole and complete. The second one is this. Invite others into your life to speak correction. Sometime this week, ask someone. If you don't have someone that can ask you the tough questions, if you don't have someone in your life that will come up and ask you what you need to be asked, find someone. Invite them to do it. And the third one is this. Enter into the situation, whatever situation it is, not in the position of being a person that's the forgiver, but rather understanding that you're forgiven. The parable immediately following this context, we, we assume that it's Jesus who forgives someone a massive debt, like $10 million kind of debt. That person with $10 million kind of debt goes, oh my goodness, I'm so grateful, thank you. They walk outside the building, they see a guy with $10 debt or $100 debt. And he says to him, hey, you owe me 100 bucks." And the guy says, I don't have the money. And he goes, okay, you're going to jail. All right? And he tosses him aside. He enters as the person that goes, I get to decide whether you're forgiven or not forgiven. I'm the one in power because I was the one that was offended. And what Jesus is saying, I believe, in this context, in the whole chapter, really is enter into any of these conversations as the forgiven. Let me leave you with this quote. It says, Too often it is assumed that this text makes legitimate our confrontation with a brother or sister on the assumption that we have power over the other because we have been wronged and thus can decide to forgive. Forgiveness from such a position is but another form of power since it, um, since it assumes that one is in superior position. But the whole point of the text is that we confront one another not as forgivers, not as those who use forgiveness as power, but first and foremost as people who have learned the truth about ourselves, namely that we are all people who need to be and have been forgiven. And if we do these things, as the text says, He is in our midst. And that's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. Let's pray.